The great books are like the Leviathan, by mere exposure, we are changed. Can you take Leviathan home as a pet? If you merely touched him, you'd never forget. Welcome to Literary Leviathans, hunting the great white whales of classic literature, with Timothy and Elizabeth Russell. Welcome back to Literary Leviathans. We never say that. So today we're super excited because we have our first guest on the podcast. He is a renowned literary critic. Uh, not really. He's our brother, John Paul Russell. Woohoo! Hey, everybody. So he's really soft-spoken, so I told him he had to sit close to the phone. So we'll see if we can hear him. All right. John Paul. So I asked John Paul to come on the podcast today because we are reading... Through the Looking Glass, and it's my favorite, one of my favorite books of all time. I can't quite say my favorite, because I have too many favorites. I was trying to figure out what to talk about, and I was talking to John Paul on the phone, and he just, it's hard to get John Paul to keep talking sometimes, but he wouldn't stop talking about this one, so I said, let's get you on the podcast. So, John Paul, mm-hmm. hmm, what do you like about this book? Why, why does it... Uh, grip you? What is it about Alice and her journey through the looking glass? Well, I think there's something uh, particular to it being about, uh, I mean, it's a sequel. So, I mean, you can't stop uh, after the first one. Yes. Right. He, He just, he couldn't stop writing about Alice. And so. So you're saying that like the magic of her comes through even more because or are you just making stuff up? <laughs> yeah, I can't tell if he's being sarcastic <laughs> no, or if he means this. <laughs> he's got that little smirk on his face that could go either way. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, if you ask me why I like anything, I won't tell you. Okay. So how does Alice react to the world around her in this book? Especially as opposed to the first one. She seems less to be carried along with it and more uh, trying to be active and trying to fix things that are mm-hmm. wrong. Yeah, we were talking about some examples on the phone. We were saying how, um, oh shoot, I'm getting them mixed up. Uh, the caucus race is in the first one. Yeah. And in that one, she's very much reactionary. They they make her in charge. They'll say like, you must give out the prizes. And then she just, she's like, oh, um, okay. So then she gives out the prizes. But in this one, almost immediately, she's thrust into um, like observing what what's going on. And she doesn't have to take an active role. No one forces her to, but... She sees the king and queen struggling up the leg of the chair of the table, right? And she like mm-hmm. goes to, she decides to help them. So she picks them up and she puts them on the table and they're just, they're just blown away. They have no idea what this force was that seems to just lift them through the air and, and deposit them somewhere. And, uh, and then on top of that, the king is all dusty. So she dusts him off and he just, he's like terrified. It seems like she's more active, but also her attempts to help out kind of backfire on her because she doesn't really know what to do maybe well i mean that's true some of the time but then uh when she's working with the the white knight yeah right um he keeps falling off of his horse just mid-conversation and so she she helps pick him up and get him back on the horse even though you know supposedly he saved her somehow from the black knight (laughs) she wasn't really all that and you know in danger from him yeah. But he seems to think that he saved her, but really she's just helping him the whole time. Which is how, that's funny, that's how Alice was, that 
she seems to thought that she saved the king. And really, she was just making things worse. When she picks him up and dusts him off, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So on the phone, you had mentioned that you think that Dr. Seuss was an imitator of Carol. Oh, I think he was inspired by him, but not <laughs> imitated by You know, not uh, imitating. In what ways? What do you see? Well, you see, like, um, in the Jabberwocky poem, mm-hmm. um, when you read the Jabberwocky all by itself, there's something haunting about it, and there's something that you can imagine to it, even though, you know, Alice herself reads it and says, oh, that's a curious poem, and then kind of puts it in her pocket and doesn't really do anything with it. But she tries to take it to uh, to Humpty Dumpty later in the book, and he really, he claims to be able to explain it, and so he, you know, explains every word in there. Um, and the more and more he explains it, the less and less the thing has any kind of magic to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just, he over-explains it, right? He says, well, slithy means lithe and slimy. Well, didn't we already, like, know that? <laughs> Intuitively. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, so, so he can explain every single word, <clears throat> but the poem doesn't make any more sense after that, right? Um, it, it doesn't make any more sense than it did before because we kind of had this intuitive knowledge of what each of these made-up words meant, um, even though we'd never seen them before. Uh, and that's something that, I think that's something that Seuss plays off of and he explores in the entirety of his work. I mean, the majority of his work being poetry, he has other paintings and stuff, which is really kind of interesting to look at. But Seuss or Carol? Seuss. Mm-hmm. But uh, the majority of his work is in his poetry, and he makes up words like, you know, the eight nozzled old elephant toted boom blitz, <laughs> which is just, it's terrifying. It's, you know, you know that if you were ever shot with this thing... Get bloom- boomed to blitz. Uh, you would just, yeah, there's no hope for you, right? And that's why you need to shun... You know, the Frumius Bandersnatch is for the same reason, because... Because you don't know what a Frumius Bandersnatch is, but you know that you don't really want to know. Kind right, of yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. And that shows a real mastery of language, and I think that it's a mastery that doesn't just come out, um, you know, with, like, the right brain side of us that's, like, just poetic and freeform and all that kind of stuff. It comes through Carol's mastery of logic, and that mm-hmm. he's got this logical progression of how words sound. He understands it. He understands that, like, that we speak, that the words that we use are not arbitrary. They're not arbitrary designations to ideas. They're our attempt to express the ideas, and therefore they're going to have some similarity to the idea itself. Yeah, sometimes. Not all language. Some of language, you know. The, the more time goes on, the more language can also be a der- derivation from a previous word that's mm-hmm. taken on a new meaning, right? So there's that. Um, it's hard to go all the way back to, like, how it actually started. To how language began. Right. But we see it enough with enough words that we can see that it definitely has that that association. I mean, yeah, certain words are onomatopoeic, right? Exactly. But uh, I don't know if I would say that, yeah, I don't know if he's playing any game more than just a word game here. Um, yeah, that's and that what I'm saying. words sound like each other. 
and not that they actually sound like what he's trying to make them signify beyond mm. our own association with language itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I would just argue that that's true, but our association with the language and with the ideas, I would say it goes, it's a two-pointed arrow. It's not just one or the other. That mm. we, we speak because of the ideas and we have ideas because of the language. We have an idea of what that thing is because of the word that we associate with it. And we have a word to associate with it because of what the thing is. And I think that that can vary in degree from word to word. And I think it can vary uh, from language to language even. That there are some languages that are much more in tune with, with uh, pure emotion or pure, uh, pure thought. And other languages that are much more refined. Um, I think English is less... <laughs> less the, the words intuiting the idea than other things. Um, but I think that's where Shakespeare and Carol and Seuss, I think that's where they shine is in tapping into that idea and then uh, manifesting it. So they've, they've taken language and they've ignored the common rules, right? They've ignored like our grammar rules, but not to a fault. They've ignored them to highlight where English is actually where it's actually shining. Well, I don't think Carol ignores grammar rules. I think he makes up words. Somebody like um, God's Grandeur. Uh, Hopkins. Hopkins, right? Hopkins ignores grammar rules. Yeah. And he, but he doesn't really ever make up words. Right. Um, so he's just highlighting that there's a difference between those two actions. Yeah. I think, and, and they both maybe accomplish a similar goal. But I think there is a difference in somebody like Hopkins who change, who uses words, but changes, you know, he ignores grammar rules and you've got, yeah, you've got Seuss who, or Carol who never, they never break the rules of grammar, but they aren't limited to certain words. They break the rules of language though. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There is definitely. If you're defining the rules difference. of language extremely loosely, <laughs> if you define it more broadly, you would include making up new words right. as one of the rules of language. Right. That's how language develops. Yeah. So, you know, they have permission. They they get to, they give themselves permission to make up words, and then they give themselves permission to, not only make up the words, but I'm, I'm trying to remember what's the the hunting of the snark. It's like to take you on an epic journey where you're not even really sure where you're going because it's really hard to even understand the words up to the point where you understand where it's going, the Jabberwock poem. And I think Carol does that more than Lewis, than Seuss. I think, um, I think Seuss, you know, he replaces a lot of nouns, right? He replaces, he makes up a lot of words like that, but like Carol, snitches on beaches. Yeah. Um, but Carol, he replaces even verbs. And adjectives so that, well, no, Seuss replaces adjectives for sure. But Carol goes further. He does the, the verbs so that with the hunting the snark or the jabberwock, you really don't even know sometimes what's happening, what the verb is that's happening. <laughs> right. Um, but you have, he just does it so well that you have a sense of what's happening. Um, and you get really excited. And when something is like, when something's exciting, it's staccato. It's going to be a sharp word. It's going to be very 
short and to the point and powerful. And if something is more melodic or calm, it's going to have a more melodic sound to it. Well, I would disagree with that. Um, just in the Jabberwock poem itself, mm-hmm. uh, he only, I mean, are Geyer and Gimbal, uh, are those verbs that he didn't make up? I'm, I'm not sure. But it seems like the only verb he makes up here is galumphing. He goes galumphing back. No, Gyre and Gimbal are, uh, those are verbs. Those are fake verbs. Did he make them up? Yes. <laughs> yes, he did. They're not Outgrabe. That's another one. Mm-hmm. Right. So well, excluding and, yeah. that first, excluding that, like that bookend stanza, mm-hmm. you have two unusual verbs. You have galumphing and chortled. Chortled is real, right? No, I believe he... A chortle is a... It's a noun, but I think he verbed it. Hmm. A word coined by Carroll. Also has worked its way into the Oxford English Dictionary, where it is defined as a blend of chuckle and snort. Yeah. I have the annotated Alice with me again today. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, so... uh, Apparently... You went galumphing, right? Galumphing is... You know, that's three syllables. It's a long word. It's got a lot of sounds in there. And it's, I mean, it's exciting, but it's not staccato. It's, you know, it's joyful and it's like bouncing, right? Mm-hmm. But it's kind of a long word. Which one? Galumphing. Galumphing. King he went galumphing, galumphing back. Apparently Lewis did include um, definitions for all of these special words that he made up in the mm-hmm. Jabberwocky poem. Well, isn't that the whole scene with, uh, oh no, um, Humpty Dumpty only translates the first verse. Okay. Yeah, he doesn't go through all of it. So, might be worth looking up if you're interested in knowing. Lewis Carroll did actually include, um, definitions. Like, outgrabe, for instance, is the past tense of the verb to outgrabe. Mm. That makes sense. Yes. <laughs> it sounds very Scottish or Welsh. It sounds very, I'm trying to think... I don't have the right language that I can think of right now, but it sounds like it's, it sounds like one of those languages that just, it's very earthy. All the sounds are very similar. What's the language that Beowulf was written in? Uh, Old English? That was written in Old English, yeah. Sounds kind of like that. So a bit of a Nordic quality to it then. Yeah. A little bit, yeah. In the British Isles. Mm Mm-hmm. And I take it back. I'm looking through Hunting the Snark and there's not, he's not really making up that many uh, verbs. He uses them. In weird ways, but he doesn't make them up. I see. It's a good one, though. I highly recommend if you haven't read it and you want to read something short by Carol, read The Hunting of the Snark. It's a poem, right? Yes. And and you don't really know what's going on most of the time. You'd have to read it a couple times to really get it. But you have the, the idea the whole time that it's an adventure. It's an epic quest to find something. The snark. Yeah, to find the snark. Um, but you also get the idea that these people are really bad at what they do. But you're not really sure why or what, what they're doing badly. And I think it's partly what they're, they're named. There's like a beaver and other things, but they're not, those are like their titles. I don't think it's a real beaver. Billiard marker, a boots, a barrister, a broker, a billiard marker, and a beaver. And a banker. They're all on the ship hunting the snark. I see. Yes. Along with the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. Mm-hmm. I just want to point out, this is kind of random, but something I found interesting is the illustration by John Tenniel of the Jabberwocky depicts it as this huge, you know, sort of dragon-like creature, and the person in front of it holding the vorpal sword is 
Not a boy like in the Jabberwocky poem, but it's a girl. It, it looks like Alice in Chainmail. Interesting. Mm. Which is like the film that must have been inspired. Yeah, it lo- she looks just like she does in the movie, basically. Nice. They probably use those illustrations for the, uh, oh, what's that called? The map that they use? The, the um, calendar? Yeah. I don't remember. It's def- I feel like it's a word from the book, but I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put in the show notes. Um, so one other thing that I wanted to talk about before we go was um, the chess, the chess layout of the, of the, the story. looking glass land. Yeah, yeah. That she goes through the looking glass and everything's backwards, right? right? But that only lasts for so long. It's it's not actually the whole point of the story. She gets outside and she realizes that she's on a giant chessboard. Or no, I guess she shrinks into the chessboard. I'm not entirely sure how that happens. Because um, there's a chessboard in the room. But <laughs> she was playing chess with her cats or, or she was thinking about it. I'm pretty then. sure it's all a dream. So that probably accounts <laughs> for how that happens. Yeah. So when she goes outside, there's this giant chessboard. And every time she goes to a new piece, um, a new place on the board, she the whole world changes all of a sudden. Right. And she can only move by going one one space at a time. Because she she's a pawn, right? Because she's a pawn. She's trying to get to the last line and become a queen. And become a queen. And I think that that's, you know, in, in Alice in Wonderland, all she's trying to do is get to the garden. Mm-hmm. Right. There's uh, almost like there's this. We, when we look back as adults, we look back at being children. We see it as a state of innocence that was all happy, and it had it was is like a, a perpetual garden, right? And I think that there's something in her that like longs for that, but it's always the. But it's the world is too confusing. It's like it's like yes, you think that childhood is a garden, but really, even in childhood, they're trying to find the garden because the world is so confusing. Yeah. And I definitely didn't feel like I was always in the garden when I was a child. <laughs> exactly. And then with Alice, though, in the looking glass, she's not trying to find a garden. She's not trying to find a state of perpetual innocence or perpetual happiness. She's actually trying to reach a state of elevated rank, a, a higher place in the world. And that's that's the state of being a queen, which I think is, is womanhood. Right. So, and, and she's realizing that that state, that that process of getting there is slow and steady. It's not any weird jumps. It's not shrinking and growing and all that kind of craziness that happened before where it's sort of this, you know, before you're 11, it's almost like the world is just totally unpredictable. You don't know what's happening. And then, but in this one, it's almost like an ordered unpredictableness. She knows that when she crosses that river, things are going to change, but she doesn't know how. But she knows they're going to change. You know, she can, like, predict when that's going to come. Right. She can prepare herself for that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and then there are men saving her who don't need to save her. And there are men threatening her who aren't actually threatening. And there's just all these weird things that happen to her that seem... That I think, whether Carol intended or not, you could take it to a degree of psychoanalyzing, you know, uh, the teen years. But... I think that that's also, but like Humpty Dumpty, to do so would be to take the charm away from the story at all. Right. You don't so. want to psychoanalyze poor Alice to death. <laughs> exactly. There's a line from Chesterton about that. I forget how it goes exactly. Poor, poor little Alice, bemoaned G.K. Chesterton. She has not only been caught and made to do lessons, she has been forced to inflict lessons on others. <laughs> Alice is now not only a schoolgirl, but a schoolmistress. The holiday is over and Dodgson is again a don. There will be lots and lots of examination papers with questions like, What do you know of the following? Mimsy, Gimbal, Haddock's Ice, Treacle Wells, Beautiful Soup. 
Record all the moves in the chess game in Through the Looking Glass and Give Diagram. Outline the practical policy of the White Knight for dealing with the social problem of green whiskers. <laughs> and distinguish between Tweedledum and Tweedledee. <laughs> Tweedledum's an adjective, Tweedledee is a verb. Wait, what? They're parts of speech? <laughs> That's what it sounded like when he said distinguish between them. Yeah, yeah kind of. Yeah, there's a point where you don't want to... Yeah, you could psychoanalyze through the looking glass till the cows come home, but is that really... Is it really worthwhile in yeah. the end yeah. to do that is the question. Through the Looking Glass is definitely my favorite. I could read it over and over again. I didn't really pick up Alice in Wonderland last week when we did this. It was just kind of like, eh, I know it pretty well. You know, like you read some parts to me and I was like, okay, yes, I've got this, you know. But when we were going to do Through the Looking Glass, I was like, yes, and I dove into the book. And I was like, okay, and I started reading it, and I was really excited. Whereas I, I read way more of Alice in Wonderland <laughs> to prepare for that podcast than I did for this one. But now I do want to go back and reread the book. Which one's your favorite? I don't know. It's been a long time since I've read Through the Looking Glass. Yeah. I definitely remember Through the Looking Glass, uh, like the, the plot, better. But I think it's also easier to remember. Because there is more There's more, a little to bit it. more of a plot to it. Yeah, it's it's like what we were saying. There's just more structure to it than Alice in Wonderland, where you know they're in the middle of the croquet game, and then she goes to talk to the Griffin. Is it uh, the Griffin takes the her to turtle. see the mock turtle? Yes, yeah, for and no then, reason at all. Yeah, and then they go back to the Queen in the court case, and you're like, why was the mock turtle there ever? <laughs> yeah. I love the mock turtle, but he just makes no sense. Where just goes to show fake turtles aren't worthwhile. <laughs> or mock turtle soup. Yeah. Yeah. Jump Hall, any closing remarks? Nope. nope. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming on. It was good to have you here. Yes. Yes. Uh, you really chatted up the podcast with us. Lots of talking for John Paul. It was actually rather impressive. During the first half, anyway. The first half. <laughs> He he's, he's just said been, all he needed to say. He's just been reading the book since then. <laughs> Can you take Leviathan home as a pet? If you merely touched him, you'd never forget. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and know others who might also enjoy it, please help us spread the joy of classic literature.